Welcome to the Sheila Kham Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Aisha Luanda. Aisha is a seasoned governance practitioner from Namibia. He is an independent non-executive director of the National Youth Service and immediate past president of the Namibian Institute of Corporate Governance. He is also former chairman of the Air Namibia State Enterprise. Previous to that, he was an independent non-executive director of NEMFOS Life Insurance, a member of for the Responsible Investing South Africa and member of the Business Ethics Network of Africa. He holds qualifications in law, both at BA and master's level. He's a governance and ethics C-suite executive at the Namibian government Institutions Pensions Fund with an asset base of more than 10 billion US dollars. Aisha, it's nice to have you on the Sheila Kham Extractive Podcast. Thank you, Sheila. That's wonderful. So I wanted to just ask you about uh, boards of state-owned entities. Who should make the appointments of representatives to the board of state-owned entities? Should it be the executive? Should it be the legislative? Thank you for the question. Very interesting. Uh, I think uh, the appointment done by the executive at the end of the they are your most senior authority of rankings. Uh, also because they are often a much smaller manageable number. So one be able to have better discourse on uh, reaching the final and so we'll get support. So from that perspective, I would put uh, the executives as uh, your executive decision-making body of uh, government. Hmm. So, I mean, there are different ways. It's one thing to make the final call, but it's another to go through a, a process of selection and, and uh, nomination of the representatives. How should that process uh, be carried out or first selecting from a pool of people? Uh, there are a number of ways, and uh, one would think uh, a hybrid system would work, whereby uh, most of the board should be encouraged to have nominations. Companies that uh, look at um, the desired skills vis-a-vis the, the skills that are on the board. Uh, the that is the one route. The second part of the hybrid um, system should be through um, transparent, open, and competitive processes where people are encouraged to apply for the positions and boards. And then, uh, with the combination of the two, one gets um, the ideal candidate. So, a hybrid system that combines both using a nominations committee and a competitive um, open application process should be able to do the trick. In many publicly listed companies and other uh, entities worldwide, the use of headhunters to identify potential candidates for boards is now uh, fairly common. Uh, the use of what are called uh, search, executive search firms. And I was wondering whether you think that this type of approach uh, is uh, relevant and potentially useful in identifying candidates for state-owned enterprises. 
Look, I would think um, it's something that can work, but um, in many an SOEs, you should watch what you want. Uh, however, if, if I'm trying to get um, uh, directors in the oil and gas sector, energy regulators, uh, and various other highly specialized areas, I think I'll still lean towards your headhunters when I'm looking for specialized skills. But ordinarily, in all the other situations, there should be sufficiently available skills on the market that I should be able to get the right candidates by using uh, my nominations in the open application system. So I would use the headhunters and search firms in very um, circumstances. Hmm. So one of the things I've observed is that in some countries, uh, seeds on boards of state-owned enterprises are almost exclusively occupied by civil servants who are also sometimes uh, regulators. What do you think of this practice? Is it advisable to only have civil servants or uh, do civil servants have a role at all to play uh, on boards of state-owned entities? Regarding that, uh, obviously there's nothing that uh, should suggest that uh, we cannot have civil servants on boards. However, we go back to the fundamental question of what may a great big board is one that uh, has skills, has sufficient diversity in terms of the age, race, uh, and other social dimensions, a board that has the right qualifications, a board that has um, a sufficient level of independence. So from that perspective, a whole, a whole occupied by civil servants will get compromised in terms of independence. So by answering your question, I would say uh, we can allow civil servants to serve on boards. However, um, it should be done within the context of having, uh, say, 70% of um, independent uh, governing body uh, members who are able to bring their A game to the board without being compromised in terms of their independence and uh, patronage and uh, affiliation. So from that perspective, um, let's allow civil servants, but them having been predominantly on the board is something that wouldn't work from the perspective of independence. Remember, these are guys that work very closely with politicians, so they wouldn't want to be, to be uh, offending uh, the political office bearers, that will have a hand in appointing them. Mm. Can you just take a step back? Because uh, you being a corporate governance guru understand the importance of uh, an independent director and the importance of directors acting independently without looking over their shoulder. Can you just explain to the listeners why from a corporate governance and a fiduciary responsibility perspective, independence of a director on a board is such a big deal. 
director independence is very crucial to success of any organization in the sense that um, you want people to bring their unbiased objective outlook to the business of the company. The problem with directors that are not independent, they tend to look at things that, um, that are beneficial to their own interests um, or such perception. So when I'm talking about an independent director who's independent of uh, the stuff that's uh, uh, employed in the organization that's independent of the owners, that's independent providers. I need that level of independence so that when deliberating on the business of the organization, we're strictly looking at how do I grow business from point A to point B without looking over the shoulder as you've indicated as to what might be of the best interest of uh, the owners, the best interest of the service providers, and whatever other interested parties are. So having said that, one needs to have a strong element of independence if one were to have a governing body that looks objectively at the business of the organization and how to create value for the organization to go to greater lengths. Mm. So I, I want to push you a little more on the notion of independence, uh, because there's a certain level at which uh, this concept is seems self-evident, but it also is somewhat uh, self-contradicting. By definition, uh, when one is appointed to a board, one serves at the wish of, say, the shareholders, the owners, or other interested parties. To the extent that uh, a director is invited and nominated and appointed by a shareholder with a particular interest, how removed realistically can a person be from the wishes of the shareholder and the people that appointed them to the board? Very interesting, uh, which tends to divide opinion. The bottom line is um, when you are appointed on the board, your ultimate obligation to the company on whose board you serve. Obviously, from the appointing authorities, they might look at it that way that I'm appointing you to go and serve my interests, whatever interests those are. However, the thinking should be, and this is Governance 101, to make sure they try so that with improved governance, you enhance organizational performance. And what this ultimately means, a governed organization results in better performance and ultimate value to the shareholder. So it's a notion that uh, many of the shareholders and uh, owners should understand that you're not appointing puppets to the board, but rather people that are going to enhance corporate governance on the organization, ultimately contribute to better performance 
of the organization. And in the end, if it's a commercial entity, be able to reap uh, growth, dividend payments, um, legitimacy, and all other associated benefits. Should we conclude from what you're saying that under these circumstances, regardless, say, of a state-owned entity like NAMDEP falling under the Minister of Mines, in terms of appointments to the board uh, and appointments of representatives of uh, the state on that company, the minister really shouldn't have a role in how the board functions. Is, is that your ultimate uh, conclusion? Plans and other um, high-level documents, obviously the minister gets involved. It's more where the minister tries and gets involved in the business uh, specific strategy, which might amount to encroachment of the role of the, of the board, which then compromises board independence. And that often ends up um, getting into dangerous territory. So the minister should have a say, but a say should be at the highest level. Um, obviously, we meet at AGMs and all these places, but when it comes to running the organization, that's a business for the board, ably assisted by an executive committee. Mm. So, so put another way, uh, it's not about whether the minister gets involved. It's more about at what level and on what issues that there should be a clear uh, separation of uh, duties with respect to uh, who does what in the hierarchy of governance. And the minister's role is to, to, to give that vision, that direction, that politically this is what we wish to achieve. And then the board takes that and, and that is what they use to, to run the company. It, would that be a, a fair distinction in terms of the roles that they play? Well, example, I didn't want um, in my previous life, I was chairperson of the National Airline in Namibia. And within that context, we had disagreements with our, land, with our Minister of Public Enterprises, where they were directly involved negotiating agreements. Obviously, that's a matter for board that you generally um, delegate to, to even management. But obviously, if you have your minister getting involved in strategic operational issues, then you have a problem. Your minister should decide, do I keep a Botswana or do I close it? That's a high-level strategic political decision because then you're deciding, do I remain connected to the world or not? But when it comes to deciding on whether I fly from Harborone to Hansi or to Francistown. That is a decision that should easily be made by your board, advised by management. I hope that illustrates um, the matter with a bit more clarity. Hmm. Yeah, no, that helps. I, I want to uh, 
follow that logic. We've started with uh, the executive branch. We've gone down to the minister. Now we're talking about the executive team. There too, we sometimes with state-owned entities can run into a bit of uh, a challenge in a world in which um, traditionally and, and for racial reasons, executive roles have been in the hands of either non-citizens or, or people of European descent. And so, as you know, there's been a drive to create opportunities and to empower uh, citizens and give them some of these roles. And, and here politics then come into play. So I wanted to ask you, um, how should, from a governance perspective, how should we approach the appointment of the executives? It, it, should the political voice be in the room or should we simply be looking at competency and uh, to your point, the interest of a well-functioning, efficient uh, state-owned entities? From where I sit, and um, once again, governance 101, appointing a CEO should solely be within the domain of the board. In taking the CEO appointment, there are, is taking to his right opinion because in many in many jurisdictions, the appointment of chief executive officers is something that's still taken to cabinet for its endorsement, name it. I still believe appointing a chief executive officer is something sit with the board, and that includes um, uh, monitoring their performance, whether you renew their contract or not, because at the end of the day, they report to the board. Obviously, issues like vetting comes in because you involved in business and um, you might need to get your, your, your vetting right. But um, if we as to East Leg leave, still appoint to professionally constitute board. Hmm. So uh, th there is the, the, my sense in listening to you is that you paint uh, an ideal world in which uh, we all uh, serve the same interest and we all value the same things. But unfortunately, it, it is fair to say that in a world in which you have politics, you have business, you have the public, uh, the, the, the environment is, hardly ideal. So while I agree with you that the focus in selecting an executive should be competency and the ability uh, of people to run the company based on the judgment of a board. If you think about uh, the ESGs, if you think about the whole notion of inclusion and diversity, the picture becomes a little bit more complex and the issues more delicate. So do tell me, how do you think we should achieve the same level of objectivity that you have described while at the same time meeting all these expectations? 
I think we need to be mindful that ESG is governance. And governance talks about diverse boards, appointing people that are competent. Uh, obviously, the S talks to your social issues. Um, I shouldn't be misconstrued as if to suggest that uh, while making appointments, we shouldn't be mindful of the social strata of where we come from. Uh, I still dream a world where, considering the demographics that we have in Africa, the useful uh, the 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 useful dividend, where I see if I have a seven-member board, let me have somebody who is younger than 35 to be able to reflect the useful diversity, people that can bring along the IT savvy world who can uh, appreciate issues from boys, artificial intelligence, which those of us are older tend to be allergic to. Uh, I still dream about a world where um, uh, I, or, or, on every other board that we have, we have some element of previously um, disadvantaged people, but also obviously uh, chosen on the right merits, people that can be easily integrated on business. Uh, and from that perspective, I think we can still achieve our objectives while integrating some of the social factors that we need to take into account. Uh, I go back to a jurisdiction like uh, Singapore. When one reads closely to, the, to what has made the SOE sector very successful is a number of factors. They go for a situation of uh, limited interference in the running of the business of the SOE entities, one. Two, they appoint their directors on merit. And this has been evident from the credentials of people that serve on their boards. And within that mix, few items that talk to our individual situation in your Botswana's, in your Namibia's, in your Mozambique's, and then you'll still have a successful SOE sector. I always describe the view that um, let me have Makeda in there who can drive the political agenda of the party that's in power. At the end of the day, what you might get is because you are trying to align your selections to political correctness. You weaken the board, and once you weaken the board, you weaken the organizational performance. So what we need to strive towards is make sure that the boundaries are set. This is the area where state can play. This is the area where boards can play. Just make sure that you appoint the right board. And the board, in turn, appoint the right executive team. And with that, we should be able to get it right. Uh, it's a simple formula. You follow it or you bust. And I think history has proven me that there's no other way around it.
So you, you spoken about appointing the right board. Uh, so let me try again and say, uh, when we think of uh, a director, what skills are we looking for in a, a non-executive director? When a director, you're looking at, um, and allow me to expand this beyond just skills, um, you look at a whole basket. Somebody to, to represent my commercial or legal constituency. These people operate within a team environment while maintaining their independence. Can these people be able to have basic financial literacy skills? Because I can tell you, it's gonna be very difficult for a director, regardless of background, that does understand a balance sheet, income statements, cash flow statements, at the highest level, because at one point or another, you will need to approve the financials and you don't do it when not everybody is on a fairly same page. Things like financial literacy. You're looking at a person that would understand what one of strategy because at the end of the day, when your board doesn't focus enough time on strategy, you have a problem. You're looking at a person in today's world that understands basic geopolitics. You don't need to go deeper, but if you cannot appreciate what's happening in Ukraine uh, and uh, Russian invasion, how are you gonna make informed decisions? You're looking at a person that uh, appreciates uh, values-based leadership because if your leadership style is not values-based, then the comes in. Your personal ethos come in. So it's a whole host of factors that you need people with the right amount of knowledge, the right amount of skill sets, the right amount of experience, and uh, yeah, and the right kind of traits uh, uh, and work. So I think I've given more than uh, I was asked to, but these are some of the things that you need to look at. So basically what you're saying is that it, the person has to be very rounded. They, they uh, probably need some level of depth in one of those issues, but certainly they ought to be able uh, to function uh, in the strategic world, in the financial world, in the relationship management world, in the risk uh, uh, containment world, and in the, the bigger world of whatever industry they are in. And, and that when we think of a board, we, we want them to collectively and individually represent this. Is that, would that be right? Precisely. Hmm. So, um, I mean, it's one thing for people to have a skill. It's, it's another then to be able to apply that skill diligently and produce results. What are some of the best ways to evaluate a board and ensure that a board performs? Uh, because having skills doesn't necessarily translate into performance. There are many other aspects uh, that are necessary before 
we can uh, achieve the end state. Obviously, uh, maybe something that I should have mentioned earlier is uh, the extent to which uh, any board member can grow and we all we should be uh, of life learning regardless of what we should allow for everybody to grow because every day is a learning curve. Having said, um, and I'll be talking from the experience that I picked up on a number of board evaluations that I've done within my own jurisdiction. Uh, obviously, uh, people need to undergo board um, assessments, both individually and collectively as a board. Every second year that you spend on the board, you do evaluation year and you take the second year to close the gaps that uh, uh, are up or the areas for improvement so that some of the champions closing them. But getting back to your question, some of the best ways of evaluating the board is doing uh, is evaluating it in a number of ways where you look at. Uh, issues of uh, the skill sets that you've spoken to. Does this board have the right skill sets, knowledge, experience, and qualifications to be able to deliver value? Then you go issues like um, board dynamic, board behaviors. Then you look at uh, whether they are operating within the right structures, and also whether they are given scope within which to express themselves, because uh, as you rightly indicated, it's one thing having skills, but um, skills are like ingredients to a meal. If there's no way of um, turning those skills into a finished product, which becomes now an efficiently functioning board, then you back to where you're coming from, you'll have uh, a whole host of uh, Sloan uh, elements that are not just into uh, getting consolidated into a functioning machine that can derive value for the stakeholders. So from that perspective, uh, one needs to have an environment where skill sets are there and all the other uh, uh, variables, but the ones that can be turned into a working board that can ultimately uh, uh, produce results. And that is where now the, the issues of leadership come in. Do I really have a chairperson that can enable the board to function in a manner that results are achieved? Or am I getting myself into a dysfunctional board with too many supposedly clever people that end arguing and only resolve one issue over a period of five hours. So these are all things that you need to look into, evaluate the board at the level of, of the board as a collective, evaluate individual board members, evaluate the leadership um, capabilities of my chairperson, zoom into committees and see the committees are in their A game in a manner that can feed to the full board to me, make a uh, uh, decision. Uh, and then I also look at the supportive arms of the board 
there's a CEO in his capacity as a, a ex officio member of the board, and then my co-sec is the strategic assigned right hand man to the chair. Uh, long, but uh, I hope it's uh, it's addressed the question. Certainly it does. So let me ask you one final question then. I mean, you, you have served on boards, including those of state-owned uh, enterprises. How well do you think uh, in Africa, these principles of good corporate governance are applied in state-owned entities? Well, on a scale of one to five, uh, one being worst and uh, five being best, I would think we are on a two. Uh, the problems seem to be very common and uh, in our SOEs, and it's obviously not only in Africa, it's, you'll find these problems in places like Asia, you'll find them in South America, I think the affairs world is doing slightly better, obviously, because uh, the quality start, the, there's no doubt that um, the level of governance, say, in the UK is uh, more advanced than, uh, in some places that uh, we live in. So from that perspective, I still believe um, we have lots of work to do, but obviously we need to try and get things right. Uh, we have problems of, um, as we indicated, of uh, political interference, where you would have politicians trying to dictate to the board what to do and what to design, and then they hide under the concepts of uh, distinction between interference and indeterminate. Um, you have problems of um, professionalization boards where people still believe, uh, let me get uh, more patronized and uh, more loyal colleagues on the boards at the expense of many a times uh, uh, knowledge, skills, and experience. You have problems of uh, sometimes lack of support from the shareholders. And once you don't have the right level of support, then I'm afraid no matter how well-intentioned you may be, you shouldn't be able to get uh, your, your, your goals through. So from that perspective, um, one gets a feeling that uh, there's not always a political will to allow these organizations to succeed. However, you have related cases where certain SPs are obviously doing well. I mean, I'm sure Ethiopia Airlines is a government-owned uh, enterprise operating within Ethiopia, and they're obviously doing better than even some government-owned entities. Uh, back home in my country, you have uh, SOEs that are doing pretty well. Um, so, we should emulate the successes of some of these organizations and believe that um, we can also uh, perform as SOEs and be able to create uh, sustainable value for the shareholder, which is the state, rather than have what they call bottomless speeds that uh, 
wait for the next budget year and get the allocations. That's wonderful. Well, thank you very much for the very comprehensive response. I've, I've enjoyed uh, speaking with you and appreciate you making the time to speak to the Sheila Kam Extractive Podcast. Thank you so much for the time. It was very exciting, insightful. I learned a lot. Uh, and uh, I look forward to listening to other podcasts.